Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Sock Takes Pod. This is episode 55. We're sponsored by Roughneck Scarves. I'm your host, Kevin Johnston. My co-pilot this evening is Sock Takes staff writer John Leonard out in Dallas. What's going on, John? Hello. I have pizza. I'm watching soccer. I'm very sleep deprived. I'm not entirely sure if my teeth are real. Uh, let's say pretty good. Awesome. And we got a fabulous guest today. He's a contributor for The Athletic, has his own website, Soccer Esquire, SoccerESQ.com. It's Mickey Turner. Mickey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us, and how's it going, man? Uh, Kevin, John, uh, great to uh, join you. A pleasure. And uh, I'm doing uh, similar things, uh, watching soccer, and uh, uh, my teeth are real. <laughs> yeah, I kind of dropped the ball on that one. You know, we scheduled this pod... And I didn't realize that we would be overlapping, you know, the kind of the tail end of the, the USMNT versus Columbia match. So apologies for that, guys. But anyway, plenty of stuff to talk about. We got a quite a, an extensive show, hopefully here. Tons of topics to cover. Also got a few Twitter questions to get to. So first and foremost, because uh, um, Mickey is a lawyer, he's kind of a, definitely one of the the foremost experts in the USA about all, not just one, but pretty much all of the outstanding lawsuits going on right now, whether it's the Save the Crew situation, NASL versus USSF. And I also um, seen his work covering the, the David Beckham uh, Miami situation a little bit. So uh, he's killing the game on the legal tip and we're thrilled to have him on. Before we get into all the legal matters, let's start with some just simple, you know, what's going on the pitch type of stuff. So. Mickey's uh, based out there in the Seattle area. He's become kind of a, a Sounders beat writer as well. He's out there grinding on the, in, on the training grounds, uh, providing some great coverage of the Sounders. So let's start, Mickey, with a little bit of a recap of the Sounders' 4-1 win against the Houston Dynamo. And one thing I want to touch on is due to a couple, a couple guys were injured, a couple people were unavailable for the Sounders, and the, the first thing I wanted to talk about was Christian Roldan. Um, of course, I, I'd say uh, Nicholas Ladero was probably the man of the match. He was just blowing everyone away. He was just a, a half step ahead of everyone else on the pitch. Um, he was probably my man of the match. Uh, Roldan showed up on the score sheet a little more, but I think Ladero, the way he impacted the game, was probably uh, my man of the match. But Roldan was right there with him, could make a strong case for him. Uh, I think he had a goal and an assist. And, you know, he's not a true holding midfielder. We've seen him play out wide before, but occasionally he does kind of play a little bit more of a defensive midfielder. But this game in particular, he seemed to be like completely unleashed. Um, he was playing out on the right wing in a 4-2-3-1, I believe it was. And I think I, I saw him get forward and kind of impact the game in the final third a little bit more than I've ever seen before. And I was actually kind of blown away by how good he looked. You know, it was almost like, man, should this guy uh, have a little bit more freedom to go forward more often? Uh, so, Mickey, uh, what were your thoughts on the match? And uh, in particular, Christian Roldan's role? Yeah, you you kind of hit on the, the nail on the head there. Uh, he was definitely uh, a top three player. I mean, obviously, the Sounders, when you win 4-1, four, four everyone pretty much is going to look pretty good. Uh, but in particular, Roldan was, was pretty fantastic. He's actually been playing out on that wing uh, for most of the second half of the season. Uh, obviously, when the Sounders were 
a wreck with injuries. Uh, he was playing more of a defensive midfielder, but since uh, they've gotten healthy, they wanted to keep him on the field and they wanted to get um, Ozzy Alonso back and uh, playing with Gustav Svensson. Um, so he's been pretty much in the right wing for the, uh, like I said, the second half of the season. And he's been pretty fantastic there. He's got a great engine. He's got a decent amount of creativity. He's not a winger out and out, but he can get down the line. He can defend. And all of that was on display uh, on Monday. Um, and as you said, he got on the score sheet, looked just generally like a tear all over the field. Uh, it's been pretty interesting uh, seeing his evolution since he came to the league. Uh, he, he's been so versatile that that's probably hurt him in some ways in as much as they've not been able to establish him at a set position. But, uh, you know, again, he's just so valuable that they've been able to plug him in just about wherever they've needed him. Um, and I think his value was definitely on display in that game, and it was certainly not lost on uh, Smetzer, who mentioned in the postgame presser that they're definitely looking to get him signed to a long-term deal. Uh, he is His uh, contract is up at the end of 2019, so he's got one more year left, um, and he certainly could go overseas and explore the options there. I know the team obviously absolutely wants to re-sign him um but he will probably have some options um if he decides to try it out um especially if a team sees him coming up on a free uh contract move and they can sign him to a free contract they don't have to sign a transfer fee um or pay a transfer fee so uh he was pretty he was fantastic uh and it was definitely noticed by uh by the coaching staff and the sounders have uh kind of become known for slow starts. In fact, it's almost become kind of an inside joke amongst uh, people that follow MLS. It, it always seems that for some reason, Seattle, I don't know, they just kind of, they go through the motions and get kind of stuck in the doldrums of, of MLS play in the first half of the season. And then miraculously, they always look like one of the best, if not the best team in the league in the second half of the season. So, Mickey, I'm curious, what do you think are, are maybe some of the root causes uh, for the, this habit that the Sounders seem to have developed? Yeah, this has been a point of uh, contention, obviously, over the last several years. Uh, Garth Lagerway, uh, the GM, um, it's a sore spot with him when people assume that they're just kind of going through the motions for the first half of the season and then <laughs> turning it on. Um, and so he, you know, you can tell he takes it personally. Um, he uh, has said on multiple occasions that he thinks there's legitimate reasons for each of the slow starts uh, since 2016. Uh, 2016, he says that it was basically the team had not had decided that they didn't buy into what Ziggy Schmidt was was selling at that point, point. Um, and they just you know a coaching change needed to be made. Uh, you know, 2017. They had a bunch of injuries. They had MLS Cup. There was a hangover, and there was CCL. So all of that kind of contributed. And then this year, they just, again, had massive injuries. Uh, they were running out a bunch of kids and rookies for the first part of the year. Um, and then, obviously, Clint Dempsey was basically ineffective for the entire year before he decided to hang up his boots. So uh, Garth says there's a number of reasons. Some of the fans think that he's been a little cheap. Uh, and as far as trying to get players signed at the beginning of the year instead of waiting till the midpoint of the season when you can get better deals potentially, as well as save a little bit of money as far as TAM and budgetary space. 
And so that annoys the fans to no end, uh, which annoys Garth that he's having to defend himself. So, uh, you know, whether it's one, whether it's the, uh, whether they're legitimate excuses or whether it's, uh, you know, just the Sounders trying to save a, a buck, uh, I tend to le- le- lean towards the, the injury reason combined with not wanting to save money as far as pinching pennies, but there are benefits to signing players at the midpoint as far as saving TAM, which you can then use on other players. So I think it's a combination of those two things. Um, but there are certainly there are certainly reasons for what has happened as far as those slow starts. And then, you know, when you get into the middle of the season and they bring in the reinforcements, it's a tried and true uh, theory that uh, at this point you bring in a couple of uh, reinforcements and then the Sounders decide to go on a run. And it's happened every uh, year, 2016, 2017 and 2018. John? I was trying to think about which time it was when Dallas went undefeated in the playoffs but got eliminated on away goals. <laughs> I don't remember when that was, but I remember it was really annoying. Uh, was that against the Sounders? It might have been. It was either Seattle or maybe it was like Portland, one of those similar cities. Yeah. Well, I could. I what I remember uh, from our uh, the Sounders battles for, with Dallas in 2014, they did win the. Uh, they beat Dallas in the in the uh, conference semifinals on uh, away goals. Twenty fifteen. That was it. Then, that was it. Yeah. That was it. And yeah, then, then twenty fifteen. The Sounders the, lost on, the in penalties. penalties. Yeah. The Zimzam penalty stare. Yeah. And then twenty sixteen, the uh, Sounders got him back uh, in the conference semi. So yeah, it's been an interesting little rivalry with Dallas, and it, it's not unlikely that it'll happen again this year, uh, depending on how this uh, seating works out. Yeah, my uh, other co-host, Ian Foster, is predicting that Seattle is currently his favorite to make it out of the West. I I think that's a safe choice, but I don't think it's a guarantee. I do think, though, that I, I think we pretty much know what the playoff picture is going to look like out West. So if Dallas wants to finally you know, win the big shiny thing instead of just watch other people do it. We we're probably going to have to go through Seattle. Yeah, that's, uh, that's probably a good shout, uh, as Columbia just scores. Uh, that's probably a good shout. I think, uh, the Sounders have obviously an easy run in, uh, for the remainder of the season, Orlando and then Houston and San Jose, but Orlando and Houston are both on the road and they're for the Orlando game. The Sounders are going to be missing, a uh, bunch of their starters. Uh, Ladero is going to be gone. Uh, Rui Diaz is going to be gone. And he's been fantastic. Svensson's likely going to be gone. And they're going to be missing a couple of their death players, too. So they may be running out Sounders, too, there uh, for Orlando. And, you know, notwithstanding how awful Orlando's been this year, uh, it is a road game in MLS. So you're never guaranteed anything. So that one could be a little tough. And then they got Houston in the next game on the road coming um, from Orlando. So that's going to be a little tough too, even though they put a hurting on Houston this past week. Uh, they're certainly going to be wanting revenge. And then you got San Jose, which should obviously be a win last game of the season. Uh, you know, don't don't back, count out, your San out. Jose wins before they hatch. <laughs> <laughs> they actually have you know, Juan has been a thorn in the side of the Sounders for years. So it's definitely not um, beyond the realm of possibility that he, he nets a goal. 
because Dallas got swept by San Jose this year. And I don't think it's a hot take to say that, in general, Dallas has been a bit better than Seattle this season. Yeah, they've certainly been more consistent. That's absolutely been the case. And so, if, uh, if we can get swept by San Jose, Seattle can certainly lose to San Jose. That is MLS, although the game is at home. So that would be that would be a, a stunning, uh, a stunning upset. Yeah, Especially with in the last our home record and we lost at home, uh, like a sellout crowd, too. Yeah. That's what getting swept entails. It's like, it still happened to us. It could definitely, like, I don't know whether I'm jinxing it or counter-jinxing it at this point, but I don't know. So let's talk about some lawsuit stuff, shall we? A little backstory to our listeners. If you're not familiar, if you've been uh, hiding under a rock watching soccer these past few months, what's going on is uh, Columbus Crew owner Anthony Precourt is trying to move his team to Austin, Texas. He bumped into a little bit of trouble. Trouble, there's this thing called the Modell Law. Um, it was originated when the Cleveland Browns moved from Ohio. And essentially, if a team is receiving public funds, they cannot move the franchise without first offering to sell to an interested local party. So uh, with that said, there's, of course, the hashtag Save the Crew has become very popular, and Anthony Precourt has kind of become public enemy number one in American soccer circles. And no one has been on this beat closer than Mickey. So, uh, Mickey, we'll start with a, with a Twitter question because we've got a few of those to get to, so we might as well knock one out now. This one is from Keith Noss. And um, he asks, asks, what will be the first action that frees up the logjam of stuff? Um, sell, expansion, or the motion to dismiss ruling? Oh, that is a fantastic question. Uh, just uh, by way of a little bit of background so people understand. Uh, the uh, lawsuit is currently waiting uh, a decision on the motion to dismiss by uh, pre-court at MLS. They filed a motion to dismiss a lawsuit on a number of grounds that is unconstitutional for X, Y, and Z reasons. I won't get into that stuff. It's a little too in the weeds, but uh, they're waiting for the motion to dismiss. That was argued on uh, September 4th, and the judge has 90 days to uh, make a decision that's based on the local rules. Uh, you know, most people thought that it would a decision would come relatively soon because this motion was filed back in April, I think it was. So he's had the motion since then, and then each party filed some, some supplemental stuff. But he's had all of the documents since July. So, you know, it's the July, August, September. It's been four months, basically, since he's had most or all of the paperwork. Um, but the thing that is, I think, holding up the uh, a decision on the motion to dismiss is that the judge also ordered that the parties try to negotiate a settlement. Um, so each side is dressed, uh, trying to, uh, you know, do some negotiations to come to a resolution, whether that resolution is that the crew are quote unquote saved or that they move or that there's some money that exchanges hands or that an expansion team is granted. All of that could be determined by the, uh, by the negotiations. So the judge is going to give them every opportunity to settle this case. And so I don't think that the motion to dismiss the ruling on that is it's probably not going to come until the judge decides that 
it's not likely that they're going to be able to settle the case. Um, so he's got until December for the motion to dismiss. Uh, if the parties uh, decide that they can resolve the case, um, that would be obviously the you know the best thing because that would get each side something that they want. Um, but that's still going to take a while because the uh, you know. Let's say that the MLS decides to sell the crew to local ownership. You still got to vet the local owners. You still got to get it approved by the MLS committee. You've still got to figure out what you're going to do with the stadium um, because it's likely that they would need to have some type of agreement to get a new stadium built. That's going to take a while because you've got to deal with all of the various you know political interests that are involved. And then that doesn't even take into account if, the uh, if there's going to be some public financing involved, which is going to likely, you know, raise a lot of complaints from local citizens. So uh, that's all a long way of saying that. Geez, and Columbus is or speaking of Columbia's, or they are getting uh, they're hammering USA right now. Sorry, I got a little distracted there. Um, so what I think is going to happen is they are going to probably take another three weeks to a month to figure out where they are and if they're going to be able to get a settlement done. Um, and I think that would be the thing that breaks this thing open if they either decide that there's something that they can resolve or if they can't. Because if they can't resolve the case, then they need to go to trial and they need to start that process with you know starting to interview witnesses, get discovery, depositions, all that kind of stuff. So I think we're probably likely to have an answer in the next three to five weeks probably maybe before Thanksgiving. And there is a mechanism in place. Uh, as much as these two parties hate one another, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there there is a mechanism in place whereas these, these two parties have to negotiate. They have to talk to one another and, in fact, have to submit a port to the judge. I think it's every two weeks or so to yeah. kind of outline how the negotiations have been going. So that's not to say that uh, reaching a compromise or an agreement is likely, but um, is that true that, you know, they, they actually have to sit down at the table together? Well, it's a little interesting because I'm not actually sure if they have been negotiating with each other as far as the settlement is concerned, at least directly, because it's a little, the case is a little unusual because it's not the city or the state uh, city of Columbus or state of Ohio that's going to end up owning the team. It's going to be a private party. And so that's the party that needs to come to a deal with MLS as far as the team is concerned. The, uh, the, the city and the state are, pro are you know, kind of just representing the interests of the citizens, but they're not going to own the team. So the negotiations are, in fact, happening between the Columbus Business Partnership, which is headed by Alex Fisher, and uh, MLS to see if they can come to an agreement. And basically, you're correct that each side has to come in every 14 days with a report um, to kind of outline where negotiations are going. But it's not really, as far as I've been able to ascertain, at this point, that will change at some point, but at this point, it's not the city and the state who are, per se, doing the negotiations. It's the private Columbus Business Partnership that is uh, handling those negotiations. So. Each side is likely submitting the reports, but uh, the MLS report is basically will basically outline what they've been doing with the Columbus Business Partnership, where the city and the state are basically saying we've been in contact and they're keeping us surprised at what's going on. So if the Columbus Business Partnership comes to an agreement with MLS, 
then they'll contact the plaintiffs, the city and the state, and then they'll try to figure out how to unwind the lawsuit because there are a bunch of things that will uh, have to be done uh, before the case is uh, ultimately resolved. John? So I'm, uh, this is going to get into some uh, hashtag speculation time, and we'll throw up the rainbow speculation time graphic for this section. But uh, So let's say it doesn't get settled and does end up going to trial. With something like this, what's a ballpark estimate of the sort of timeline it might end up getting? Uh, I would say it would be, uh, well, because there is a motion to dismiss uh, before us right now, and because uh, MLS and pre-court appealed uh, an order, which basically added 40 days to what's been going on or stalled things for 40 days, uh, it is like that a trial would not get underway until at best summer 2019 and probably even into the fall. Um, there's a trial assignment date set for March, but that's not the actual trial date. That's basically where the court comes in and says, okay, where are you at? Have you completed X, Y, and Z? And are you guys ready to go to trial? And if not, what's your timeline? So it is highly unlikely we would see a case before the say, in the summer, early fall. Um, so it would certainly be a while uh, before uh, they are in a trial in this case. There's a lot of stuff they still have to do. They haven't actually done anything to proceed really towards a trial at this point, like at all. Okay. And so thinking about that is, do you think that assuming these the lawyers on both sides would presumably have a similar thoughts about this, do you think the threat of a trial might be actively working to persuade a settlement? I think it's definitely persuade, uh, working to persuade MLS and pre-court to settle or to get the case resolved one way or another. I think they're, they're obviously hoping for the motion to dismiss. So uh, the case is you know, dismissed and they can do whatever they want uh, subject to appeals. But we'll put that aside for a moment. So um, they do not, you know, I I assume MLS does not want anything to do with a trial in this case, because before a trial is the discovery process and uh, the uh, plaintiffs, I think it's the state has already sent out there what are called interrogatories and requests for production, which is basically uh, give me all the information related to this case. Um, and MLS certainly does not want to have anything to do with that because it's likely that they have to release, you know, yeah, emails, com you know, uh, text messages, uh, contractual documents, the infamous Austin clause is likely to have to be disclosed. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of stuff that MLS certainly does not want disclosed to the plaintiffs. Even if that stuff is filed under seal, um, and some of it certainly would be, uh, you know, things it's have still going to wind up in the public eye. Things have a way of leaking, even if it's not the documents. It could be someone gets a look at something. Um, and the report gets made. So there is, a, you know, it is obvious that MLS does not want anything to do with that. So they certainly have the uh, more motivation to settle. Um, you know, obviously, if Columbus loses their team, that would be, uh, you know, a tragic for them. Um, but, you know, their their risk, so to speak, is certainly much less than um, MLS's. I mean, again, losing the team would be absolutely tragic. Uh, but, you know, you know, their lives will go on in that situation. 
um, whereas there could be repercussions uh, for MLS if a bunch of information gets gets disclosed that they don't want to disclose. So, um, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's how I see it going at this point. MLS is certainly has the more uh, incentive to, uh, to settle. And there's also the issue of they haven't uh, they haven't secured the Austin uh, stadium site yet or a stadium plan. Um, and so, you know, things on that front are certainly far from settled. Uh, you know, they ha- there are potential lawsuits that are coming into play. There's elections with potentially new politicians who may not have been as favorable or may not see the Austin deal as favorably as others do. So uh, it's certainly a mess down in uh, Austin. I can't actually use the word that was quoted to me as far as what describing the situation. <laughs> you uh, can. But uh, I, 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 well, this is a children's show, uh, so a family <laughs> show, I should say. So uh, I don't want to get you guys in trouble with the FCC, but uh, it's certainly it's certainly not going uh, as well as uh, maybe they would like you to think it's going at this point. And as far as searching for a new site, there are actually kind of two factors at play, correct? They're they're basically searching for a stadium, which by all accounts they would not be playing in until 2021 at the earliest. So they got to get that ironed out as well as find a temporary stadium. You know, if they were to get a franchise in Austin that takes the pitch in 2019 or 2020, they also would have to have a second facility to, to temporarily play in. Is that right? And that's, but yeah, that's kind of where I was going with things not going uh, well down there. So uh, they've gotten, they've got the stadium site for their, uh, you know, their big stadium, the, the new one uh, at McCalla Place. That has been approved as far as the location. They're working on the lease. And once, you know, once they sign off on the lease, it's ready to go, you know, again, setting aside any challenges or anything like that. Um, but as you note, uh, if they want to play in 2019, the McCallick place will not be ready. And there are limited locations for them to play temporarily in 2019 and 2020. Uh, University of Texas has not seemed to be particularly interested in using one of their two facilities. They've got a soccer uh, complex, I think it's called Meyer Stadium, um, which would be nice. I mean, it would work work for them, but Texas hasn't seemed to be interested in letting MLS use it. Um, and then obviously they have their, their big stadium, which I cannot remember the name of, uh, their football stadium, which, you know, seats like 70,000 or whatever. Uh, but they certainly haven't seemed interested in letting them use that. Uh, so that takes one of the most attractive options off the table and only leaves essentially baseball fields, which are minor league baseball fields at that, um, which are certainly not, you know, suitable just from a, you know, a size and dimension standpoint, they probably need waivers from uh, from um, U.S. soccer. Um, and then the locations are, I think, 20 to 30 minutes from downtown, which means that you're going to have, you know, commuting issues and all that fun stuff to go see a team play in a minor league stadium that doesn't have nearly the amenities that uh, MLS is looking for. Um, and then you also have the risk of, you know, not good attendance, because those uh, stadiums are so far away and they are very small. So they are not anywhere near getting something set up for 2019. I actually talked to the Dell Diamond people, which is the stadium in Austin, um, and asked them how and if there were any negotiations going. They would not comment on 
the current state of negotiations, but they did say that their 2019 baseball uh, schedule has already been completed. And they told me specifically that any deals that were reached with MLS will require that they work around those dates. So, uh, Again, it is far from settled at this point as far as uh, what uh, what they're going to do about a stadium solution for 2019. Yeah. So I've got a little bit of additional information with my ear to the ground here in Texas. Uh, the a, a, a person who has spoke off the record but works pretty closely related to UT Athletics has said that it's not happening MLS to any of their venues unless they're willing to the I, I was hearing a, a rental price for the soccer stadium in the five million to ten million range and much Ooh. more than that for uh, Daryl Royal Memorial Stadium and plus Memorial seats a hundred three thousand or okay, so yeah. Uh, and it's there's no way to like artificially reduce the capacity. It's just cavernous and empty if it's not even halfway full. And I, I've already heard that they do not have anything scheduled for 2019 or 2020 at any UT venues. And I haven't heard much from the Dell Diamond people and Round Rock and all that. But I have heard that part of the uh, essentially with the Astros taking over affiliation with Round Rock instead of the Texas Rangers, they are hearing that it might actually complicate available or additional things at that venue because the Astros are kind of wanting to do their own additional events and maybe have uh -huh. some uh, other stuff going on. And it's everything I heard makes me think that they did talk to Round Rock, but it it wasn't going to work. And the only other thing I've heard on the Texas front is that Round Rock has not been inspected by USSF. That's not surprising. And that is actually that's a great information on the UT stuff. Uh, if they are wanting to charge $5 million a year for, for Myers. Uh, you know, that doesn't actually seem like a whole lot in the context of, um, uh, you know, of what we're talking about here. But again, we're talking about an owner in pre-court that doesn't appear to be flush with cash and was certainly haggling with Austin about the no, uh, amount of taxes uh, he should be paying um, or, you know, rental fees or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it, the, the tax issue threatened to blow up the McCalla deal. And I don't, you know, I don't think we were talking about a massive amount uh, for that. Uh, granted, that's for a longer time period. But if he was haggling over, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year here and it doesn't it, it makes sense that he wasn't interested in playing or paying, you know, another five million dollars for a two year rental. I you know, it doesn't appear to me that he's got the type of money that can just be launched or, you know, you know thrown at UT when he's going to be especially when he's going to be 
constructing new, a new stadium and having to pay for all those relocation costs. Yeah, I've heard rumors that Precourt is not a billionaire, even on paper or anything. And I, I attempted to do some research into this, and even with a lot of information about people who are just above the billion-dollar threshold, Precourt is nowhere to be found, and nowhere is his immediate family to be found. So either they've got a really good firm to scrub information off the internet, or he's not nearly as rich as he wants us to believe. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anybody's ever thought he was particular. He's not Paul Allen by any stretch of the imagination, um, and so uh, it's you know there's a reason that they're they're doing this as opposed to just having sending him on his way with an expansion team. Um, and it's probably because it is cheaper for them to simply move the team to Austin from Columbus than to start fresh with an expansion team for whatever reason uh, that may be. Um, but that's, I mean, that's that's the reason I've always assumed uh, that uh, they've been, well, aside from not wanting to be in Columbus for one reason or another. Um, but that's the reason I've always assumed is he just doesn't have the money to really, you know, front a you know front an mls team as as garber and the owners now want to do it because again remember he i came in and purchased the columbus crew for 68 million dollars and that was considered way overpaying at the time this was in 2013 um and now expansion teams are going for 150 million plus um and so you know that's pretty some pretty easy math to do <laughs> Yeah, I, I've had this stereotype, or not stereotype, uh, conspiracy theory, that's the word, uh, that part of this whole thing, and th this might be a stretch, but my I've had this weird feeling that he's wanted out of Columbus, but he can't actually afford to move. So he's doing this whole thing with MLS's help to inflate the value of the team, re-energize the local fan base, get a new stadium for Columbus, and then Preport sells for, we'll call it $450 million, a very, very comfortable profit, and enough to basically pay off the stadium in Austin and an expansion fee and have some change left over for, I don't know, blackjack and hookers or whatever his thing is. <laughs> Like, I I don't know if he's smart enough to do that, and I don't know if Garber would be going along with it, but my, my hat is definitely set to tinfoil on that one. Well, I think the problem for the, the problem for them probably on that uh, on that uh, theory is the lawsuit is likely going to preclude them from trying to gouge uh, the city of Columbus, or you know, I should say the uh, whoever ends up buying it. Um, you know, whether, you know, whether or not the law is constitutional or not, uh, you know, obviously is, is up for some legal debate, but it's constitutional right now. Um, and so that's the world with, under which they are living. Um, and so uh, it again, it, it really depends on how they how the stadium issue in Columbus functions. Um, if there's going to be some um, large public component to that, then you can probably get off selling the. Uh, getting the asking price much lower because you can basically say you're offsetting the value with this new stadium. Um, but 
if some obviously if some guy's coming in with a private privately funded stadium that changes the the calculus um on the sale price um but we just don't know that right now because they're still in negotiations um and we're still waiting to see what happens there and Nikki, yeah. I, I saw your story on another potential wrench that could be thrown into MLS's side, which is a, a schedule conflict. Of course, with the lawsuit pending, you know, no one knows the future of the crew right now. So normally the MLS schedule comes out in like early January-ish, I believe. That's and right. so um, it looked like in your story, you had heard that the MLS is kind of, they kind of have two schedules ready to go in their holster, ready to whip out depending on what happens. So how big of a headache has this whole schedule thing been for uh, MLS and pre-court? Well, uh, I've been, you know, for that story, I did a bunch of, uh, you know, chatting with people and just trying to figure out the processes by which they, you know, construct these schedules. You know, each of the individual teams basically has started that process um, now. If they haven't started before, they probably have you know started it well before before now, um, and then they'll come you know each team. Uh, from what I was told, essentially each team constructs their schedule, and then they come in with to MLS, and then it takes them you know a week or two to basically put it together. So it's not it's not an overly elaborate process um, from what from what I was told. Uh, obviously, in this situation, you've got a problem because you don't know where a team is going to be playing. Um, and so, number one, you have to wait on their ability to secure a location to play, which they obviously haven't done right now. And then there's also the issue of whether you're going to move uh, Austin in this scenario to the Western Conference. Are you going to keep them in the Eastern Conference? Are you going to move Houston over? Uh, are you going to move, say, uh, Kansas City or, or Minnesota over? Uh, you just don't know. So all of those things are going to uh, play havoc with the stadium because right now we have uh, 23 teams. you got uh, Cincy coming in next year. They're clearly going to be in the Eastern Conference. And so you've got to move someone uh, either. Uh, yeah, you got to move someone over to the West. Um, um, I think I think I, I'll have to double check on that. Or I think they may be even with Cincinnati. But if you move uh, Columbus to Houston, uh, to Austin, then you've got a little bit of an odd situation. So uh, that's all, you know, wreaking havoc with their schedules. Um, but the actual schedule making process doesn't take very long. Um, but from what I was heard, one of the the options is basically to schedule for 2019 and have a schedule for Houston or for Austin and have a schedule for Columbus and basically plug and play uh, once you've got that uh, some resolution on which team is going to be where in 2019. Well, if they are coming to Austin, the one things I would be expecting to see by now would be some degree of people able to at least discuss even anonymously about sponsorship. And I've put out a few feeler calls to some of the companies that I was generally expecting. They've sponsored sports in Austin before. And with about... 24 to 30 that two and a half or two to two and a half dozen I was not hearing any yeses really unusually yeah and the other thing I heard uh, was 
I got a, uh, a line on where they might put a training facility um, out in uh, Pflugerville. And that I'm still waiting to hear back from those uh, folks to see if there are any ongoing discussions. Uh, but, you know, they, they're also going to need to have some place to practice. Uh, you know, granted, they could, uh, you know, <laughs> rent some, you know, some kids soccer fields or something like that uh, or practice in like the parking lot next door. But um, they still got to do all that stuff, too. So there's a massive amount of things that they have to do. They have to start soliciting season tickets as well. Um, obviously, they have not done that because they're selling season tickets in, in Columbus right now. Um, and then, you know, the schedule, as we said, it usually goes comes out in uh, January. Um, you know, it has come out earlier than that and later than that. But it's been January, I think, for the last four-ish years. And, you know, the reason it could come out later in the earlier years is because they didn't start playing until April. Uh, but uh, at this point, uh, you know, if they're going to be playing in early March, as we expect they will, that doesn't leave you much time uh, to get the schedule announced. You know, they'd like to do the first uh, the home opener thing where they announce where the home o- where the teams are playing their home openers and what and what dates. And so there's a lot of stuff that if they're not if they're not even close to having sponsors or a temporary stadium um, or the ability to sell season tickets down there, it just seems harder and harder to see how they're going to be able to get down there in 2019, uh, which may which would lead me to believe that they're trying to do something to keep the team and to keep a team in Columbus and the parties are haggling off on whether it's the crew that stay or it's an expansion team that comes in. Yeah, that's also what I've been hearing a lot of is that it's, it's pretty much entirely rumor, but I can even, I'll, I'll, I'll go as far as to say sources rather close to MLS have openly speculated. They think Austin gets an expansion team for 2021, assuming the that pre-court accepts the Columbus Partnerships bid. I would not dispute that. Uh, I would not dispute that statement based on what I've heard. Yeah, that that's I, I, lately that seems to be the most commonly held rumor slash opinion from the people who I would trust to have decent sources. Yeah, that I, I, yeah, again, you're kind of on the same, or I'm kind of on the same uh, limitations as you as far as saying, uh, saying too much, but that is, that is a, a fair representation of the current state of affairs. Yeah. And I've actually been signed up since the beginning, just just in case I've been signing up for all of the Austin FC supporter stuff to give me all the info. And <laughs> even the 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 AstroTurf supporter groups don't have any information about tickets or sponsors. Yeah, it's just uh yeah, there's obviously a time by which this thing uh, they're going to have to basically keep the crew in Columbus for 2019, even if they announce that 
they may move at some future date or there is an expansion team in Austin or or something along those lines. But we are rapidly approaching the date by which the crew will be in Columbus for 2019. It is just a matter of how, uh, what form that takes, whether pre-court's involved, uh, whether they've got new owners, whether they have a stadium deal, um, and all of that, all of that good stuff. Because it's just, you know, there's just, you know, at some point you've got to play a season and yeah. we're, you're just getting to that point. I mean, it's uh, October 11th. Uh, they typically announce those uh, home openers in December and then the stadium comes out or the, uh, the schedule comes out in early January. Now, sure, they could push the schedule date back, but that's not going to make most or any MLS fans happy when they're trying to plan trips and all that fun stuff that people like to do when the schedule comes out. So, um, and I don't think they're going to be particularly understanding when MLS says, yeah, we weren't able to really figure out what to do with Austin and Columbus. Um, so we had to push the schedule back to mid February um, because we're waiting for a lawsuit uh, to be resolved. <laughs> uh, then, you know, they'll get a big middle finger from uh, pretty much all of MLS fandom. Yeah. And, and considering that, you know, I was able to pick up a Tampa Bay White Sox hat and T-shirt on eBay, I, I'm still not confident that the crew are gone for good yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, like I said uh, earlier, there's, there's still some time before a decision, decision has to be made either way. Uh, but, you know, we're getting, we're getting to that point. Uh, yeah. We're not quite there yet, but we are getting to that point. And Mickey, in covering this whole Save the Crew saga, you recently got the chance to go out to Columbus to provide some boots-on-the-ground coverage directly from the epicenter, which ties into a Twitter question we got from the Soccer Dud, who asks uh, how you enjoyed your time in Columbus. Oh, yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I wrote a little bit about this on my site, but, uh, yeah, I was out there for the motion to dismiss in September. Uh, it was a it was a very fun experience. I had not been to Columbus or Ohio before, um, and so uh, everyone out there was very nice. I was able to meet up with several groups of fans. Um, I was able to talk to a, a couple of sources um, out there as well to kind of get a feel for how things uh, were on the ground. Um, at that point, obviously, things were probably a little more pessimistic um, because, you know, we didn't know what... Um, we had just talked about um, as far as how, how uh, things were going in Austin. Um, so I, I was able to get out there, cover the motion to dismiss. That was a fun experience, got into court. Um, and like I said, was able to cover the hearing and provide some analysis. Um, everyone seemed to really uh, like it. And uh, the city itself was very nice. I had a good time. I uh, was able to check out, uh, you know, a couple of the uh, hotspots, uh, you know, and I was able to, get briefly tour or briefly tour where one of the potential stadium sites is. Um, and it's actually a pretty nice location. It would probably be a very successful uh, location. It's, it's right located probably like uh, four or five blocks off the main downtown drags. So um, it's easy, you know, easy walking um, and, you know, easy, uh, relatively easy transit and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was a great time. They had a great cigar bar, which I uh, appreciated. 
um, and uh, yeah, a great time uh, all around. So I'm looking forward to getting out there again if uh, if I am able to. And while we're talking about personal stuff, and you mentioned a cigar, uh, I'll wrap two Twitter questions into one. One of these is from Phil Scohen, who is a commentator for BN Sports and Sirius XMFC. Also from Dave Clark. And they want to know your, your favorite stick and favorite post-game beverage. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's an excellent question. So uh, I, my brother uh, is the one that kind of got me into cigars. Um, and so I'd say my favorite one um, is uh, an, uh, Arturo Fuente. Uh, they are very, you know, very, you know, you know, robust cigar, but not, you know, overpowering. Um, and so those are uh, some of my favorites. Um, obviously, if I can find a good Cuban, I, I will not pass that up. Uh, but those are a little difficult to find uh, in the States, unfortunately. Uh, actually, I was up in Canada uh, for the Sounders uh, Whitecaps game a couple of weeks ago. So I was able to get my hands on a couple of uh, Cuban cigars. Um, and then uh, post-game beverage is probably... I'm. I used to be more of a uh, more of a hophead, uh, but I'm more into lagers now. So I like a I like a nice uh, frosty Stella is is probably my uh, go to post game drink. John, so do we do we want to talk some NASL? Yes. Okay, let's 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 talk some NASL. Yeah, sure. Let's start first off with the obligatory question: Which color is New York City? <laughs> oh, so I, I suppose there's three options at this point, right? Ah, there's <laughs> as many options as you feel there need to be. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. I I uh, would probably say well, I don't want to take a side because I you know I have no uh, uh, affinity for um, any of the New York sides. Um, particularly, so I'll say I'll say purple. How's that one? <laughs> I guess Orlando has done pretty well up there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Not recently, anyway. Uh, okay, but but yeah. So I, I'm just remembering now that like NYCFC has still yet to win an Open Cup game. Like, they've been eliminated in the first round three years in a row, and I just feel the need to point that out to NYCFC fans at every possible opportunity. Your team is garbage at the most historic tournament we have in the country. That is all. (laughs) Well, interesting. Obviously, the Sounders have a a fairly storied history um, in the Open Cup, but they've uh, struggled in it recently, and that's also been a source of contention. Um, A lot of fans out here have been saying that uh, uh, Garth, uh, doesn't take the USO Cup seriously. They play a lot of kids, and so he's kind of uh, had been under the firing uh, on the firing lines on that one. But anyway, that's uh, that's a bit of an aside as far as the uh, the NASL stuff. Yeah. So I, I let's 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 just jump into it. What the hell is going on right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 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 actually been. Uh, Obviously, that, you know, and it's actually funny we're talking uh, today um, because I uh, tweeted out uh, 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 or retweeted uh, something that I had uh, written um, on October 11th of 2017, which was basically my first ever 
quote unquote legal soccer tweet um, when I first started covering, you know, you know, U.S. legal soccer issues. And it was a it was a tweet about the NASL lawsuit. Um, and I think U.S. soccer at that point had filed a request to dismiss the case. And so the uh, Galati had written up a declaration. So today's basically the first a year. Today is my one year anniversary of covering soccer legal issues. So um, so I kind of started off with that. But since um, I would say since the uh, motion for the injunction was rejected and that was in February of this year, the case is kind of slowed, I'd say, uh, slowed down. And part of that is because it's just on its trial track. Um, NASL tried to get a trial date set for June of next year because, obviously, the longer the case goes, the less likely they're able to come back and start a season, even if they win the case. Um, And so the court basically said, well, well, I can't give you a trial date right now because you guys haven't done your discovery process yet. Um, But we'll set a status hearing, basically, or a deadline in April. Um, and if you guys are ready at that point, then we'll set a trial date. So they're in the process right now of requesting all sorts of information from each party. Um, they actually came to an agreement on what they are required to provide as far as uh, texts and emails and all that fun stuff. Uh, most of it prior to 2008, because uh, obviously NASL was not in existence but prior to 2008. So you can't really claim that U.S. soccer was conspiring to destroy a business that didn't exist. So uh, they've come to an agreement on all that stuff. So they're basically kind of in the discovery phase right now. My guess is that they'll start doing depositions here pretty soon. Um, I should probably do a little bit of digging and see what I can find out about when and where those are going to be. Not that they'll be uh, publicized or anything like that, but... um, we should get, be able to get some in, interesting information when that happens. But, you know, things have kind of slowed at this point after being, you know, it, it was kind of the all-encompassing thing back in, uh, you know, the uh, fall slash winter of 2017. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of one of those things where you're in the trial, you're in your trial process now. So things aren't going to be as crazy as they were. Um, but, they're, you know, things are just kind of moving along at this point. Um, and we'll see what happens uh, as we get into the spring um, and if they're ready to get this case moving towards a trial. Because it's set for a trial at this, or it will be set for a trial uh, once they finish the discovery process. Uh, because U.S. Soccer and MLS dis- uh, declined to file a motion to dismiss. So that means this case will go to trial unless there is a, uh, a resolution by way of a settlement um, or NASL decides to dismiss it for some reason. Or if the court finds, uh, you know, f- dismisses it on a summary judgment motion, which is certainly possible. Um, but again, that won't happen until uh, until April. So with all that, uh, I, I'm trying to think of which is the best angle to take next. Because in a lot of ways, I think Kevin would very much agree that the first NASL dramatic period where things looked like they were falling apart in the winter of 2016 to 2017. Oh, yes. I think that 
I don't think I'm wrong in saying that that was pretty much directly responsible to the creation of sock takes. <laughs> That's yeah. And yeah. And then again, that was kind of, uh, you know, I, I hadn't started covering that stuff um, at that time. Um, but when I was getting into really digging into the NASL stuff, when they were filing their motion for the injunctions, I was digging back through all the filings and I, you know, I basically kind of reverse engineered my knowledge of, uh, the whole history of the NASL, um, the modern version of the NASL, um, and all of that stuff. And there was just a ton of stuff that, you know, you just learned about. Um, and you can really, you know, by going back and reviewing it, it was just interesting to see how the relationship between U.S. soccer and the NASL really deteriorated over, uh, you know, a short time period, um, you know, specifically around 2015, I want to say. Uh, when uh, NASL was looking to become a Division One uh, league to really compete with uh, MLS, um, and U.S. Soccer, you know, you know, declined to grant them that designation, um, and then there was also the issue with them trying to amend the professional league standards in 2015 after amending them uh, the year prior, which uh, resulted in a threat of a lawsuit, um, and so. It was just uh, interesting to see how the relationship, uh, you know, really just crumbled, uh, you know, in a, in a relatively short period, time period. And you can just see in, the, in, in all the pleadings how much the parties dislike each other. Uh, obviously, Rocco has a uh, has a colorful way of uh, describing his interactions <laughs> with U.S. soccer. Um, and they certainly can give as well as they get. So, um yeah, uh, 2016. Just you know, I didn't live it at the time because I wasn't covering it at the time. But the fall of fall slash winter of 2016, when the NASL, you know, nearly fell apart, uh, was definitely something um, that you know piqued my interest, even though I wasn't following at the time. And people don't remember that USL was no great shakes at that point as well. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, and you know, they, they and one of the things I found when I was doing my research was uh, U.S. soccer actually wasn't going to sanction either of them for the 2017 season um, because neither of them, they felt, you know, really met the uh, requirements to be a sustainable league uh, through the professional league standards. Now, eventually, obviously they gave them a reprieve and then U uh, S soccer in 2017 cut the, you know, cut off um, NASL, um, which, you know, led to the lawsuit. But um, you know, I think that's, it's, an, it's just an interesting, uh, interesting story to tell about uh, the you know how lower league soccer was was functioning um and in uh, 2016 or, or dysfunctioning yeah, which... dysfunctioning. <laughs> absolutely absolutely that is actually the uh the correct uh, phrase to use yeah because it was it was a mess then and it's less of a mess now but it's it's <laughs> it's not not a mess it's just <laughs> Like a different, slightly less of a mess. Yeah, it's like a different flavored mess. <laughs> well, Mickey, yeah, as we would... uh, as we wrap things up here, let's jump out to our last Twitter question, which kind of puts you on the spot. You know, you got to make a prediction, you got to editorialize and give an opinion here. Um, from a Twitter follower Matt Morris asks, basically, uh, what you think is going to happen? How do you see the different soccer lawsuits going on? And I'll jump in here real quick. Cause he asked about the, um, the, you know, the save the crew situation and also the NASL versus USSF. We basically just touched on 
the the save the crew situation. I've heard the exact same things you guys have heard as far as that goes. In fact, I mean, it's not even really rumors at this point. I think a couple reputable journalists have uh, have tweeted or said stuff about this, but um, I'm in the camp. And from what you guys said earlier, I think we're all in the camp that we feel like the, the solution in the end is going to be the Columbus crew stay with new ownership and Precord eventually gets his own franchise out in Austin. So correct me if I'm wrong on that, Mickey. Uh, and then we'll just segue into the second part of that. What do you think is going to shake out in the end in the NASL versus the USSF lawsuit? Um, yeah. So just to, to finish up on the crew thing, um, that is, yeah, that is where I'm leaning right now uh, that uh, the crew stay uh, and then a new, uh, and then the uh, owners or uh, pre-court heads down to Austin with, uh, with a team. Uh as the only thing that I think would, would mess that up is if Austin falls apart because of the various issues down there. Um, you know, there's a bunch of lawsuits uh, that have been threatened. Uh, there's a, uh, there's a petition to really hamstring uh, the development down there. So just think of a situation where they've got the crew have their owners ready to take over for pre court, but pre court has nowhere to go. Uh, because Austin <laughs> falls apart, and I wouldn't—I would put the chances of that at uh, not zero. Um, and Give so us I, that percentage. <laughs> uh, a percentage <laughs> chance that uh, the whole uh, the Austin falls completely apart. Um, I still think I—I—I I, I, I would say it's low. Uh, I would say probably like ten percent. I mean, it's kind of—it's like a that would be a a disaster, um, but. Yeah, you know, I don't think again. I don't think it's a zero percent chance. So I put it at somewhere between five and ten percent. So anyway, with all that said, uh, assuming they get their deal done down there, then uh, I would say that yeah, the crew stay um, and pre court goes, um, and uh, you know, Garby gets to play the hero for saving uh, <laughs> yeah, saving the crew. Um, as far as the NASL lawsuit goes, it's a little early to say um, because. The thing that NASL wants out of this, aside from being able to kind of, you know, choose their destiny as far as how they want to operate, is also to change the fundamental regulatory structure of U.S. soccer. Um, you know, one of their requests is basically a declaratory judgment that U.S. soccer is not allowed to regulate uh, the leagues through the professional league standards or at least not in the way that they currently do. So uh, that would basically elim eliminate the uh, authority of U.S. soccer to designate leagues um, and, you know, impose standards as far as financials and, you know, time zone and number of teams and all that stuff. So it, I think it's a little early to say, uh, to say on that issue. Um, and so I'm going to, I'll, I'll cough out on that one a little bit uh, just because it, it's, it's way too early. It's just way too early. Um, the theory that U S soccer is allowed to regulate, uh, you know, uh, professional soccer leagues is not enshrined in any particular statute. You know, there's the uh, Ted Stevens act, which governs uh, uh, amateurs and Olympics, but it's not been extended per se to professional leagues. And at least one, court um i think in chicago um i'd have to double check on that has you know they they determined that u.s soccer does not have the ability to use the ted stevens act 
to regulate um, soft, professional soccer. Um, it's not, it hasn't been really extended anywhere else, um, but that's going to be something that is probably fought over at a trial. So, um, on the and then that one, you'll have to invite me back when we get a little further back, and uh, I'll be able to give you a better answer on that one. <laughs> okay, so uh, just for fun, I'd like to just throw my hat into the ring in this predictions game because that's what I like to do, and. I, I think the Austin failing, I think the 10% feels about right. I'd say 70% the crew gets sold, Precourt gets an expansion team and gets to enjoy whatever mental erection he has for South by Southwest from up close. <laughs> uh, so much for the, the family show. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> PG-13 still. I didn't say any bad words. I didn't say anything you wouldn't hear in a middle school science class or see written on the walls of a public school locker room. And we'll give it 10% chance Austin or the crew actually get up and relocate. So that's 10, 70, 10. Uh, 2% chance MLS loses its uh, sanctioning from FIFA for some dumb reason. <laughs> uh, 3% chance they decide to merge with uh, Liga MX and they move a Liga MX team to Austin instead. Uh, and then I'm going to go with a reliable 5% flaming meteor. <laughs> <laughs> that is a mouthful. Uh, uh... I would say uh, those, you know, with the exception of the flaming meteor, because um, I would say that's about eight <laughs> percent. Um, no, I, I would say that those uh, those percentages seem about right as far as you know, seventy percent the crew stay, ten percent Austin fails, and you know something insane happens, um, and then probably ten to you know ten to fifteen percent that the crew um, end up moving. I think the thing uh, the thing we'll want to watch out for is whether they uh, they can agree on a price uh, for the sale and the stadium. I think the stadium uh, resolution in Columbus um, is going to be more complicated than people think, um, because if it requires public funding, that is going to be even for even in this situation um, where it may not be a whole lot of money, that, that is always a problem. And so that is something that is going to have to be, uh, worked out and that's something again that is not going to be likely determined right away is you got to go through the local governments to get that stuff solved john any final questions for mickey before we wrap up let's play percentages with the nasl with the options nasl <laughs> plays again in the fall of 2019 with their dumb european or british calendar alignment uh the option of nasl just collapses and its teams all fly off to npsl pro uh nasl merges with nisa the new york cosmos join mls and flaming meteor <laughs> <laughs> I would put Flaming Media pretty high up uh, as far as uh, those options are concerned. Uh, I, uh, I would say the, uh, oh God, it's just, it's so tough to say because uh, Rocco has not, 
know, and, and he's essentially heading this thing now, um, you know, as far as the, the lawsuit is concerned. Uh, he he hasn't demonstrated much of a want to settle this on terms that don't mean the total surrender of U.S. soccer. Um, you know, when he came up with his $500 million proposal, he, he uh, it, it included basically pro-rel, I think, within like three to five years, which is just, there's just no way that that kind of thing is going to happen. Um, and, and I understand, you know, obviously, you don't, you don't start your negotiations where you're willing to, you know, end up, but there's such a thing as, you know, coming in with realistic, uh, you know, realistic demands. So, um, so with all that said, um, if it's, it, I don't see much of a chance this case settles. So that means that you're basically asking for a prediction on how the trial goes, which I, again, I, I'm going to cop out on, but as far as the, I, I think, I think, I think they will play again in some form, um, it may not be in a form that is recognized by U.S. soccer. So NPSL Pro. Yeah, I, I would say something along those lines is probably the, the most likely um, outcome. I mean, if they win the lawsuit, then you know, they can basically do whatever they want. Um, yeah. The, the rumors so far have indicated Cosmos and Miami likely doing that from what I've been hearing with RP down in Jacksonville potentially moving to Nisa because it lets him do his TV thing. Yeah. Yeah, he, he's obviously uh, Palmer in Jacksonville. He's got his kind of own, uh, you know, his own, I won't say motivations, but agenda. Uh, he's, yeah, he's got his own thing going on. Well, Mickey, thanks so much for joining us. I'm going to go ahead and plug your Patreon in case you're too shy to do it yourself or too humble. Definitely hop over to patreon.com slash soccer Esquire. That's soccer ESQ. Support him at any level you wish. Patreon lets you choose your own amount. He's doing great work. So hop over there. Mickey, where can our listeners find you on social media and find your work online? Yeah. Uh, so you can find me at uh, Turner ESQ on, on the Twitter uh, same uh, Turner ESU on Instagram, um, although I, that's just mostly my family and fun stuff. Um, and then obviously my writing you can find at SoccerESQ.com. Um, and then I also have a Facebook page with uh, you just search Soccer ESQ um, and I uh, upload all my stuff in case uh, people don't all use Twitter, which I know they don't. <laughs> and big thanks to my other co-host, John Leonard. You can find him across the social media spectrum at John MLTX. I'm your host, Kevin Johnston. You can find me at KJ Boxing. This is episode 55. Big thanks to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, official scarf supplier of MLS, USL, and US Soccer. Get custom scarves for your group or team at roughneckscarves.com. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll be back next week with another episode of the Sock Takes Pod. Farewell. Bye!